Hello, and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds and how amazing they are, with a slight emphasis on the fact that some might just be a little bit more amazing than others. Each week, a special guest comes and talks about the five species of bird that they would save from the impending environmental apocalypse, and then they must choose one of those five species to be their ultimate champion to go into a best bird battle off with my favourite, the mighty peregrine falcon. This week, my special guest is Alex Bond. Alex is the senior curator in charge of birds at the Natural History Museum in London and co-lead of the Adrift Lab, a research collective focused on seabirds and marine plastics research based at the University of Tasmania. He has been studying seabirds, plastic pollution and island conservation for two decades and was recently appointed ornithologist in residence at St Nicholas's Church in Leicester. Alex, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. How are you today? Hi, kid. I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really good, thanks. And I'm, I'm really pleased that we've managed to finally get up after all of these years of interacting on Twitter. And obviously, you, you also contributed to the BTO book I helped put together, Red 67, and you wrote about one of the declining bird species in the UK, which is actually one of your five species today. So no spoilers. So thank you for that. As I mentioned in the introduction there, you are the senior curator in charge of birds at the Natural History Museum in London. But I have seen that cabinet full of coots feet and it's possibly the creepiest thing I've ever seen. How is the job and, and can you describe to us what it is that you do, your role there? Yeah, sure. So the Natural History Museum has uh, about 80 million objects in its collection covering everything, uh, living fossils, rocks, minerals, you name it. But we've got a million bird objects, which makes us one of the biggest in the world. And, wow. and uh, so the coot cabinet that, you know, as you say, that's actually was put in the museum in, in London just after that building was opened in 1882. So that, that's an original case. And it's meant yeah. to show sort of comparative anatomy. So it's got different bills. It's got different feet. It's got different, you know, feathers and wings. And it's meant to show the diversity of birds that you can, you know, that are, well, that exist in general. But, you know, that public exhibition side is just one small part of our job. And we've got an entire team that look after galleries. But what we don't see is the million specimens that are behind the scenes in the scientific collection. And that's what we're, we're charged, my, myself and my team of six are charged with looking after. And some of them are pretty important. You know, we've got, Darwin's finches. We've got, in some cases, the only examples of species because they're now extinct left in the world. So that's incredible. It's a pretty amazing collection. Um, and not going to lie, it's a bit intimidating when you first walk in and you realize, oh, right, I've got the key to that cabinet now. But yeah, no, it's absolutely brilliant. I couldn't ask for a better job. I'm sure people say this to you all the time, but if that movie Night of the Museum ever came true, I'd have been straight to the birds to get all that, those extinct species coming back to life on my list. Great auk, brilliant! Yeah, yeah, great auk, dodo, all the honey creepers from Hawaii, oh. you know, just some examples of, of what we've got in the collection. And do those birds get exhibited from time to time, presumably? Yeah, so it depends. So uh, in our treasures gallery in London, we've got a great auk and a complete dodo skeleton, of which there are not that many kicking around. You're not going to find that underneath the Chesterfield. But, you know, most of the specimens that are of incredible scientific value, they only go on, on display or exhibition in very special circumstances. Yeah. So most of the birds, if you go and you look in the gallery, the bird gallery in London, or indeed in the bird galleries at the Natural History Museum in Tring, which is where the bird collection is based in Hertfordshire, 
the birds there, well, they're, I mean, they're actual, they're birds, but they don't have that scientific data associated with them. They're for display, which makes them a bit easier to manage and, and we care for them in a slightly different way than the scientific specimens. Ah, okay. What do you mean they don't have the data attached to them? What's the difference between those birds and the, and the others? So in the scientific collection, we rely on birds having primarily three or four different bits of data. So obviously a species ID is very important. And you might think, oh yeah, that's stupidly easy. No, no, it's not. We've got 95% of the world's species represented in our collection. And when you're trying to separate out, is this a herring, lesser black bat hybrid bat crossed with a glaucous Iceland hybrid, to take gulls, for example, or is it just a, a Thayer's, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is one, one of your favorites? Um, you know, so, so we need a species ID, we need a date, and we need a place. And ideally, we'd know who collected it, because as well as being objects of scientific value, they're also cultural objects. So, yeah. you know, we get people coming in looking at the history of collecting or, you know, the voyages of discovery um, around Antarctica in the 19th and early 20th century. So people can piece together information about that side of things from the specimens. Whereas the specimens that we have on display, typically it's just an example of. So it won't necessarily have data associated. So we might not know where it came from. We don't know when, or it's been prepared specifically for that exhibition. Ah, uh, okay. understand now. And this role that you're in now is obviously on the back of 20 years worth of studying seabirds and your research publication list is, is really impressive and really long. You've done an incredible amount of, of research into seabirds over the years. Is there any of those pieces of work that have particularly stuck with you or, or places you've been that you've particularly enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough to go to some pretty amazing places. And I dare say, I don't think there are too many other people on the planet that can sort of tick off the same list of places where I've been. So the place that really sticks out for me is a lovely island called Kiska, which is in the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, that trail of islands that goes west from Alaska out towards Russia. And that's where I did my PhD. And I spent four summers living in a tent in a colony of about two million auklets, uh, which are the same family as, as the puffins and guillemots that we have here in the UK, smelling of tangerines. <laughs> and for me, that was my first real super remote field work. We get dropped off at the end of May with all of our supplies and then they say, there's no water so it's collecting rainwater there's no electricity except for a uh, diesel generator like a little, like a bread box or something I mean, it's not big. And they say, right, we'll see you in 11 weeks. Wow. And it's just you and one other person in this field camp with 2 million seabirds at the base of a 4,000 foot active volcano. <laughs> Sounds incredible. I mean, it was, yeah, really where I, I sunk my teeth into sort of the, you know, issues around conservation, particularly invasive species. So the island has introduced rats, Norway rats, which arrived during the Second World War, because the island was occupied by the Americans and then the Japanese and then the Americans again. And we were trying to understand what those were doing to the, to the seabirds on the island. And it was, yeah, my first real introduction to that sort of area of research, um, and so in that way, yeah, it sort of set me up the the second half, the, you know, the next 10 years of, of things that we've been doing. That's amazing. I bet you had to select your research partner very carefully there if you were going to be with them on 11, for 11 weeks and no other human to talk to. Yeah, you've got one other person. And that's because it's you know such a remote environment. 
as an active volcano, you can't really just like go off and be by yourself because you could fall into a hole in the ground, like quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're basically, you're constantly with this other person unless you're going to loo or asleep in your tent. Brilliant stuff. Something else I mentioned in the introduction there, you've recently been appointed as ornithologist in residence at the inclusive church St. Nicholas's in Leicester. What does that role entail? <laughs> um, yeah, great. Please, you know, answers on the postcard, please. Um, so St. Nicholas is a, is, a, is a church in Leicester. It's the oldest church in Leicester, and we believe it's something like the 12th oldest church in England. It was first consecrated in 879, so it predates England even itself. And yeah, uh, through, through, through a colleague there, basically for the last year we've been discussing, you know, that we should do something. We should, we, we should do something. And, and this was what, this is what came out of it. We don't really know what it's going to look like yet because as far as we're aware, it's the only ornithologist in residence at, uh, at a church in England. Although obviously many of them have peregrines, which, you know, obviously a favorite of yours. Yeah. So if we can lure the ones over from Leicester Cathedral, uh, I don't know, provisioning some pigeons or something like that. We might have something <laughs> to do. But it's more about, you know, the, the ethos of St. Nicholas being an inclusive place, looking to build community and learn from its past to inform its present and look forward to the future. I mean, that's very much the same thing that we do in the Adrift Lab when we, you know, tackle issues of plastic pollution. We're trying to learn from the past, apply that in the present and come up with a better way of going forward in the future and doing that as part of an inclusive and diverse community. Sounds great. Once once lockdown restrictions ease and things, I could imagine you setting off on field trips and leading tours and trying to lure those peregrines over to your church. <laughs> Defect over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, ultimately, it's it's a two way it's a two way thing. So you know, there's lots that I can learn and 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 with the the community there, looking at how they can what they can do for wildlife in general. Yeah, great stuff. So as you know, this podcast is about birds and we're going to talk about the five species that you would save from the inevitable environmental disaster heading our way. And you you know about that more than probably the average person, I would imagine. So let's crack on. We'll, we'll chat about the first bird that you're going to talk about today. Tell us about bird number one. one, one, one. So bird number one is the masked booby. They're so wonderful. They're really widely distributed. They're across all sort of the pan-tropical areas. So they nest in the South Atlantic, the South Indian, the South Pacific Ocean, Hawaii, off the east coast of Africa, on Ascension Island, in the middle of the South Atlantic, in the Caribbean. They're pretty much everywhere. But we don't actually know a heck of a lot about them. I mean, they're one of these things that these species, which are just, you know, we think they're so common. We think we know a lot about them. And this is sort of mirrors a lot of what we think about plastic pollution as well. We think, oh, everyone is, you know, knows everything about plastic pollution. David Attenborough has done something on it. Liz Bonin's done something on it. Like, it's everywhere. But actually, when you start digging down and thinking, right, well, what's, what are the threats to mass boobies globally? We don't have a clue because they're just so common that people think, oh, they're doing fine. And so for me, they represent that sort of I won't say neglected, but, you know, I'm a big fan of the underdog, and they're just so lovely. They just squeak and honk <laughs> at you when you walk up to them. The males whistle and the females honk. But, you know, and, and they're just they're just so gorgeous. They're so slick and svelte, and when you see them, you know, plunge diving, they're basically like a tropical gannet. Yeah. You know, same family. You know, they're just absolutely brilliant. And they're, yeah, just sitting on a beach, 
chill out, being booby. And yeah, people tend to not pay them too much attention. Yeah, they're great birds. I think one of my top 10 birds would be the gannet. And they're so like that up on the Northumberland coast. I could sit and watch gannets for hours just diving and doing their thing. Obviously, the booby family are, are related to the gannets, as you, as you mentioned. I've seen blue-footed boobies in Galapagos. I've seen brown boobies, but I've never seen a masked booby, despite them being as common. And they're the largest of the boobies as well. Yeah, no, they're they're pretty big. I mean, you know, the, the females can be, you know, two and a half, three kilos, I think. But the other thing, just like all the other sulids, so the gannets and boobies, of course, they don't have any external nostrils. So if you look on their bill, they don't have nose holes, basically. And that's because when they dive, you don't want water rushing up your nose at, you know, some ridiculous pressure. So their nostrils are actually inside their bill, which, you know, when you're a scientist and you're handling these birds, if you're ringing them, for example... It means you can't just clamp onto their bill to keep a hold of it, um, because otherwise they'll suffocate. So you've got to be very careful, <laughs> shall we say, to avoid the, the lovely serrations on their bill coming into contact with something uh, like your arm or your finger or, yeah. or something else. But yeah, no, they're absolutely wonderful. I was reading that, like other boobies, the blue-footed boobies, when we were there in Galapagos, I don't know if it's the same in the masked boobies case, but in the blue-footed booby, they have this ring of guano around the nest site and if, if one of the chicks sort of happens to go over there, they kind of don't recognize them anymore and just leave them. And, you know, that's that and brings this kind of blue-footed booby sumo competition with the siblings into play. But I was reading about the masked booby and it, they tend to have two chicks, but one's bigger than the other. And then the eldest just kills the youngest pretty much every time. Is that true? I mean, so, you know, they're tropical species and the tropics are not terribly productive in terms of nutrients. So, you know, birds have to forage a very long way. Um, this is why most species migrate, is because they can come up north to these fantastic blooms, these, you know, of, of algae, of zooplankton, of fish. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's, you know, it's land birds as well, you know, caterpillars and butterflies and all the, you know, emergent insects, aquatic invertebrates, that sort of thing. They're not really around in the winter. So birds go somewhere else and then come back north or south, uh, depending on which hemisphere you're in, uh, to take advantage of those seasonal pulses. But some species, you know, really thrive on that nutrient-poor tropical environment. And, yeah, the way that they do that is basically by having these sort of insurance policies. These are incredibly long-lived. So, you know, to keep the population going over the lifetime of a bird, they only need to have, you know, maybe three or four chicks over a lifetime, which could be 40-plus years. So, you know, lay two eggs. It's relatively cheap to lay an egg. And if there's lots of food, brilliant, you get two. If there's not, well, okay, you still get one. And yeah, that's basically the bird's insurance policy. Clever stuff, but a bit grim. Yeah, I mean, lots of birds do it. No, they do. Yeah. How many chicks will be in, in blue tit nest boxes and how many of those will survive their first year? Yeah. You know, how many cygnets will a swan pair have and how many of those will survive? Or or coot and moorhens. I mean, the moorhens, it's the parents that actually peck at the heads of the weakest of the brood when they realize that they've not got enough resources to look after them. Oh, I knew it. They're evil. <laughs> <laughs> but they're great looking birds as well. Mask boobies. They're like, if anybody listening doesn't know what they, they look like, Google it, look them up. They're just like the pimped up gannet. That awesome looking, beautiful black and white and black mask. Great looking birds. Right. Let's crack on. Let's talk about bird number two. two, two, two. So my second bird is the first bird that I ever ringed when I first started my research career about 20 years ago. It's one that I absolutely adore, but one that I will completely take the piss out of because everyone loves them. 
and I think they're incredibly overrated, and that's the puffin. <laughs> I, I call them one-pound balls of hay. I mean, they weigh about a pound, or at least the ones in North America do. The ones in Britain are a bit smaller, and they're just they're just mean. Their claws get everywhere. They've got these, you know, hatchet bills that tear up your fingers. And yeah, they're cute and, and everything, but I mean, they've, they've been done. They're still lovely. They're brilliant to look at. And they're, for some people, you know, the first real sort of seabird, quote unquote, that they'll interact with or see. If you go out to places like the Seabird Centre in Scotland or Benton Cliffs or um, Pembrokeshire in Wales, Isle of May, you know, all these places that thrive off tourism showing off seabirds, they've all got one thing in common, and that's beside boats, puffins. So, no, I appreciate, you know, they, they do have a role to play, but I just think they're a little bit overstated. Yeah, I agree. They are amazing birds, like all birds are, but they're done to death. They're stuffed toys, they're kids' books, they're kids' publishing house, no less. You know, they're, they are, they're just everywhere, but they are a hook for people with a passing interest in wildlife. Puffins draw you in, don't they? They get the crowds on boats. Yeah, they do. And, you know, even though... You know, they've been studied within an inch of their life, I dare say, by some of the, you know, best ornithologists, particularly here in the UK, either, you know, Lockley on, on the Pembrokeshire Islands or Mike Harris on the Isle of May. But, you know, even, you know, despite that, there's still a heck of a lot that we don't know about them. And this, yeah, maybe picking up a theme here. So, you know, puffins, they're globally threatened, which most people might not realize. So they're declining on the east side of the Atlantic. But they also occur in North America, in Canada and the northern U.S. They get down to about middle of middle of Maine, which is the first state going south on the Atlantic seaboard, where they're doing fine. <laughs> Why? Who knows? Again, you know, these, these sort of challenges of, of studying seabirds, because they don't just stay in one country or one site. I mean, everyone does their, their thing at these individual breeding sites, but it takes a community to bring that together and look, right, let's see what puffins are doing in Norway. What are they doing in Scotland? What are they doing in Wales? What are they doing in Iceland? What are they doing in Newfoundland? What are they doing in New Brunswick? To try and really pull that global picture together. So puffins on, um, in the Northeast Atlantic, they respond very differently to changes in climate and you know sea surface temperature and oceanography than birds in North America. And we don't really know why that is. Um, so that's, yeah, that's one of the really interesting things that we're starting to look at at the museum, looking, you know, both in our museum collections, but also combined with some fieldwork. That's amazing, isn't it? You would think that they are so iconic and they're so well represented everywhere. You would think that there can't be much else that isn't known about a species. But when you're talking about declines, you know, the more information you can gather, the better. And there was that bit of research, wasn't there, a couple of years ago by a friend of mine called Jamie Dunning, who I'm sure you know Jamie as well. Yeah. When he accidentally, I don't know if it was accidental or, or he was just testing things out. I can't remember now, but he realized that puffins beaks glow under ultraviolet light and it caused this massive social media storm. And he was famous for a while because of that. But that's, you know, something that was never known before that puffins beaks glow in ultraviolet light. And, and that sheds a whole new light, light <laughs> a whole new light on, on puffins. You know, do they have this fourth visual spectrum that they can tap into and why can they, you know, it's just mind boggling. That Yeah, for, for a species that's been yeah studied a heck of a lot, there's still stuff to discover. So Jamie came to the museum and we looked at a whole bunch of our puffins. And in fact, you know, this is a, this glow in the dark, glow in the dark, um, you know, this, you know, reflecting UV light is actually, actually occurs in some other auks as well. So crested auklets, which is one of the species I did my PhD on. They've got these fantastic 
you know, they're small. They're about, you know, maybe half a puffin, if we can use puffin as a unit of measurement. <laughs> but they've got these fantastic orange bills, um, which, like the puffins, they shed off some of those plates in the winter, so they're not quite as exciting. But in the summer, they're fantastically bright orange, and they also glow under UV. So you know, there's definitely something going on there. There's always more to find out, even even about stuff that we think is common as muck. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So yeah, for people like you and I, puffins seem to be done to death, but maybe not. Maybe we need to look at them with different eyes. A couple of things I, I do actually respect puffins for is the fact that they do, you know, once they leave their breeding grounds and they're all pimped up with their crazy colors and they're looking cute and... Apparently, the reason that we gravitate towards them or people gravitate towards them is because they're rotund and round and cute and they, they remind us of babies. Psychological studies of, you know, that's just crazy. You know, it's a bird that looks like a baby and that's why we like them so much. But I love the, the fact that they then just go out to sea for winter. They stop flying, you know, they shed their flight feathers and they just kind of bob around on the sea, diving down and living like that for the next few months. So actually, although they look ridiculous on land and popping out of their burrows, they're pretty hardy, impressive birds, you know, and go down to 60 meters. And, you know, those, those windows, the idea that all of these puffins are, nobody sees them, but they're off there surviving until they come back and then find the same mate in the same burrow when they come back as well. So, you know, I've, I've done them down and I've turned them into plectrums that look like the four members of KISS and made pie charts out of them and made fun of them for these years. But actually, they're that can be impressive when you think about it. Yeah, there are puffins that, that breed sort of in the far north of Greenland. Some of them winter next to the pack ice um, outside the breeding season. You know, they're incredibly amazing birds. As you say, you know, all birds are amazing. Some are just slightly more amazing than others. Or they're amazing in ways we haven't yet discovered. And I think, you know, puffins, yes, they've been studied to death, but I think they've still got a few secrets up their sleeves. <laughs> Great stuff. Right. I think we've waxed lyrical about puffins enough there. So let's move on to your third choice, which is probably one that people might not be so enthusiastic about. But tell us about bird number three. Bird number three. three, three. So my third bird is the much maligned herring gull. So you know I've got a soft spot for them. So I, I wrote a bit about them for the Red 67 book a couple of years ago. And... You know, I think they get a bit of a bad rap. I mean, birds gotta eat. Sometimes they eat other birds. Sometimes they eat your chips. But, you know, herring gulls, they are just the epitome of adaptability. You know, you've got everything from surviving off urchins and mussels in the inner tidal, kleptoparasitizing, stealing food from puffins and razorbills and guillemots that are coming back to nesting colonies, foraging in the tip, you know, on the seashore... They're just phenomenal. And yet, despite that, and a lot of people might be surprised to hear that, they're actually in serious decline. Now, part of that is probably because their populations were you know, much higher in the sort of 60s, 70s, and 80s, because they would feed on discards from fishing vessels, basically the bits of bait and fish that they just threw overboard, which you can't do nowadays. And, you know, we didn't cover tips or landfills quite so regularly. So, you know, they had ready supply of, of this food. But... You know, even all that aside, they're still not doing great. And I think because, again, just like the mass booby, people think, oh, yeah, it's just a gull. It's just a seagull. You know, no big deal. But, it, you know, that's got as much intrinsic value as part of the ecosystem as a puffin. Absolutely. And I think the media doesn't help today with all these hysterical stories. And, I mean, 
partially the Herring Girls, like you say, they're, they're so opportunistic and, and so adaptable that they have moved into towns. And I think they were one of the first birds to start nesting on rooftops, weren't they? In the sort of 1920s, you know, they, they came into towns where people wouldn't necessarily associate them to be. And yeah, they're just so adaptable and opportunistic, but they make a racket, they make a mess and therefore people don't like them. And I've, I've joked about them, as you know, and it's largely because I find gull identification difficult and I don't have the time to, to spend on learning it. So I just sort of lump them all and, and make a joke of it. But they are mightily impressive birds. Yeah, I mean, you say, yeah, they're, they're noisy and make a mess. I mean, have you seen blackbirds? Noisy, up at all hours. Yep. And if you've got any berry bushes in your in your garden or nearby, everything's going to be covered in purple or red or something. I mean, this is part of you know living living with the natural world. But I had a, a call from a from a member of parliament from from northeast Scotland at one point a few years ago who wanted you know tips and advice for how to deal with these quote unquote immense Aberdonian seagulls, <laughs> you know, which were not you know let's be fair not statistically that much bigger than gulls anywhere else in the country, you know, despite what people might, you know, think on the, you know, on the seashore. There's this human-wildlife conflict between them in ways that we don't have with a lot of other species, at least in the UK. Yeah, you know, because of that conflict with humans, they get such a bad rap. And as recently as just a few years ago, I I read that 16,000 were killed between 2013 and and 2018 just for being a threat or a perceived nuisance. And they're a declining species. It's it's just crazy. And we need to change our attitude to to gulls generally, I think, but specifically herring gulls because they're great. I also read somewhere once upon a time about how they drop mussels from a height to try and smash the shells open. A bit like lamagayas and bones, you know, and they realised that other birds were catching them before they could get down to the ground to to get the smashed mussels. So some of them have learned to actually come down lower, but throw the mussel up in the air so it gets the extra height and, and the velocity and then they can get down that little bit faster to get the muscle before one of their pals do. Really clever adaptability, and I thought that was very impressive. Interesting you mentioned Lammergeist as well, because, you know, that basically, that means lamb vulture yeah. in German. So, you know, we, we, I mean, we loved the Lammergeist that showed up in the UK last year. We thought, oh, this is absolutely brilliant. Any predatory bird, vultures, skuas, giant petrels, you know, for the seabirds, and gulls have this, you know, because they... Because they eat other birds, you know, they get they get the sort of bad rap. But ultimately, that's what they're supposed to be doing. And it's us who's who's changed things around so much on them. Completely unfair. And, you know, just, just look at them. I mean, most people just, you know, write them off. But there is nothing as amazing as the fantastically ivory white head of a herring gull in breeding plumage. That, for me, is one of my highlights of the year. They are beautiful, stunning birds and much maligned and much overlooked as well. So you heard it here first. <laughs> I'm coming down on the side of the herring gull. <laughs> Blimey, I've changed. Right, let's move on and we'll talk now about bird number four. So bird number four for me is one that's very close to my heart. You know, people ask, what's your favourite bird? There's 11 or 12,000 species of bird in the world, depending on how you count them. And, and my two favourites, because I can never pick one, one is the razorbill, just because it looks so amazing, so yep. svelte with the orange mouth. But bird number four for me is is right up there, and that's the flesh-footed shearwater, which I'm guessing not many folks in the UK will have seen because they don't occur in the Atlantic. They breed in Australia, New Zealand, and they're the species that we've been studying for the last 15 years or so uh, on Lord Howe Island, trying to understand the effects of 
of plastic pollution. And, you know, like I said earlier, you know, I love the sort of the underdog, the forgotten species. When we started, nobody was really looking at them, so there was heaps that we didn't know. We didn't know how many there were. They breed in burrows in the ground, maybe two or three meters. They're pretty big. They weigh about 800 grams. That's two puffins, if you're counting one at home. Um, but if you look at some of the, the survey data from the early you know, 1970s and 1980s, and you go out to some of these islands, there's one island off the coast of Western Australia that said there were two to 300,000 pairs, which would be like half the world's population. But when you actually went out there, and when you actually look at the methods of the person who actually did that field report, it was a botanist who counted footprints, <laughs> and there was absolutely no way. If there were 300,000 pairs on that island, the island wouldn't exist. It was just too small. Um, and it turns out, actually, there's only a couple of thousand. And you know, that can have huge implications for when you're thinking about you know, how many of these birds are permitted to be taken as bycatch in fisheries? Or, um, you know, when should we be concerned when we start seeing birds wash up on the beaches, for example? So, you know, until, until our team sort of came along, um, the flushfoots were sort of a, not a forgotten species, but they were just sort of there. Nobody really cared too much about them. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time with them. They're lovely. They're cranky. There's, there's a, <laughs> on, on Lord Hawaii Island in the shop, there's a, a, block of cheese, you know, the, the sort of, you know, aged category is called sharp and bitey, which is exactly a flesh-footed shearwater. <laughs> I bet you've got a few scars from them, have you? More than I care to count. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I was reading a little bit about your research on Lord Howe Island, which is, for people who might not know, 600 kilometres off the coast of Australia. Is that right? So it's halfway between Sydney and New Zealand. So smack dab in the middle of the Tasman Sea off the east coast of, of Australia. It looks like an incredible place. And you've been studying the, the, the plastics in these birds, as you mentioned there. And I think you discovered that 80 to 90% of chicks have at least one piece of plastic in them. Yeah, they're one of the most affected species in the world. So, you know, when we think of plastics in seabirds, a lot of folks think of Laysan albatrosses in Hawaii. Chris Jordan took some amazing photographs about a decade ago of these bird, basically rib cages filled yep. with plastics. But, you know, the shearwaters have the same effect. It's everything from incredibly small nano and ultrafine particles up to bottle caps, you know, lids from aerosol cans, like your wheels from, from toys, bits of Lego. You know, we've, we've pretty much found it all in these guys over the years. It must be really distressing to see that, you know, in such a pristine, beautiful place and then to discover all that inside these poor chicks that are being fed them by their parents as well. Yeah, so the way, you know, the plastics gets into them, so they stay in the burrows, the chicks stay in the burrows for about 90 days, and then when they come out, just as they're ready to fledge, they come out at night, um, we can just walk through the colony with all, you know, various licenses, of course, and then we can basically pump their stomachs with water, get rid of the plastics, so the bird is doing better, but also we can count it, is the parents have been bringing this plastic back to them when they feed them every three or four days. Um, over the course of the, the previous number of months. And yeah, basically, you know, some years, every bird has plastic in it. And some of them, it, they're so impacted. When you pick them up, when you're holding the bird, you can actually feel it crunching in their stomach between your hands. It's the most visceral thing. And, you know, we try and explain this to people who've never been see it. Um, and even if, you know, people have seen pictures or video, nothing compares to being in the lab when you just nick the stomach of a, of a dead bird when we're dissecting it. Um, and this plastic essentially almost explodes out. I mean, there's absolutely nothing like it. It can be 
yeah, it's mentally, it's absolutely draining to do that for two weeks. Yeah. Every year is exhausting. It must be soul destroying as well, just, you know, when you come across that. I think I read in your article, in, in your paper, that there was one bird with 274 pieces of plastic in, in one chick. Yeah, that's our record. It weighed 64 grams in this in this chick, which would be the equivalent of about 15 kilos in a human. So imagine having, you know, 15 kilos of plastic just in your stomach, but then also having to run a marathon without knowing the course and without having to train properly and do it backwards. And that's what these birds are doing, because they'll leave Lord Howe Island, the chicks. Parents have left. They've said, you're done. We're out of here. Um, the chicks will leave the island, and then they migrate north to the Sea of Japan, and they'll spend five to seven years at sea before coming back again. So if your stomach's absolutely jammed full of plastic, and you're only weighing half of what you should, you know, chances of your surviving and, and making and being able to feed are not that brilliant. No, that's really disheartening and, and a depressing, sobering thought, isn't it? I mean, all of these birds that, you know, you've mentioned, they're all declining for one reason or another, aren't they? Um, whether it's food, rising water temperatures, plastics, or, or whether it's like you said before, you know, just we don't really know enough yet to, to, to understand it. But seabirds are more susceptible than other birds, aren't they? And I guess the worry is that these birds will go the way of other birds, such as the great auk, for example. Yeah, I mean, seabirds are one of the fastest declining groups of birds in the world. Bycatch, invasive species, habitat loss, human persecution, contaminants in plastics, oil spills, you know, loss of foods, changing ocean temperatures. You know, they don't really get... There's very few seabirds that are doing well. You know, and yeah, like you say, you know, we've lost a number of seabirds globally in the last 500 years, and probably the most iconic of those is is the great auk, of which, you know, they, they disappeared in 1844, the last pair, Mycelin. Um, they used to breed in the UK. They used to be a, a British mm. breeding bird, for goodness sakes. Um, and, you know, during the majority of the time, for example, that St. Nicholas and Leicester has been in existence, there have been breeding great yeah. auks. It's crazy to think that, and now the only way to see one is in a museum somewhere. Yeah, exactly. There's only, I think, about 70 specimens of great auk left in the world, which sounds like not very much, but you, know, you should point out that's more than quite a lot of other species that are extinct. But, you know, they, they, you know, they were iconic. They're the logo of the American Ornithological Society, and its journal up until last year was called yeah. The Auk, um, you know, where, where scientists would publish their research. So, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to see a number of them in museums around the world. At the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto was the first one I saw. Um, the American Museum of Natural History in New York has, I think, three. Of course, we've got four of them at the Natural History Museum in London, including the only definitively British specimen, which was from Papa Westray. Um, cool. Well, you'll have to come up to, to Newcastle. The Hancock Museum in Newcastle, or the Great North Museum, it was rebranded a few years ago. I used to go there a lot as a kid and as a teenager. I used to go and draw the birds. And they've got a couple, actually, including, I believe, the only legitimate juvenile specimen in the world, and it's in Newcastle. So you can get another couple on your on your great orc list by uh, coming north, including a juvenile. So there you go. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, we don't know a lot about great orcs and, and how they, you know, what their development was like, because they were, so we know they were flightless, um, and we know that, you know, they were persecuted because... Large flightless birds, remote islands, yeah, they're probably going to be pretty tasty um, and pretty oily. 
um, which is, you know, two, two things that fishermen, seamen needed in the, well, up until the 19th century. But yeah, consequently, there's not a heck of a lot of, of juvenile examples out there. There's, there's only even a few drawings and, and illustrations of juvenile great dogs. But I've seen one in the, the prints and drawings collection at the British Library from sometime in the late 1700s. And, you know, their, their scientific name, Penguinus impennis. I mean, that's where we get penguin from because, you know, they fulfill that same ecological niche. Again, fantastic birds and very sorry that we don't have them around anymore. Yeah, well, hopefully, thanks to the, the likes of yourself studying seabirds, you know, we can learn more about the species and, and the challenges they face and hopefully prevent something like that happening again, although I'm not entirely hopeful about that for, for certain birds, but we'll see. So anyway, we snuck an extra one in there under bird number four, um, but it was too good to pass up chatting about the great orc. So let's move on to bird number five. Bird number five. So bird number five, canonically, I believe the best duck to see duck, it's the common eider. Eiders, I mean, what more can you say? They're just so gorgeous. You know, they've got that little smudge of green. They've got that pink wash. They're so svelte. That's the only word I can think of. And, you know, if you've, if you've ever been near the coast and there's a flock of eiders just offshore, it's, I found it for a long time really hard to describe what that sounded like. But so I, I'm from Canada, if you couldn't tell from the accent. When I moved to the UK about seven years ago, I realized I know exactly what it is. It's a northern granny when you tell them you've met a nice boy. Oh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> that's, that's that the a either. very very good impression um i've heard sam west the actor sam west when he was on his tweet of the day he talked about the ida and he he described them as a coven of gossiping frankie howards around the village pump and it's like that kind of noise that they, it's a, <laughs> it is a fantastic noise i mean and and you know people because people think oh yeah ducks they they quack no, sea ducks, they, they do, they, they awoo, and they whistle, and, you know, and, yeah, and, and eiders, I mean, they just, I have yet to see a bad picture of an eider. If you, uh, if you're on Twitter, look at the hashtag rate eiders, and you'll see from, from myself and a variety of other people, um, various grades of, of eider photos, but they are inevitably at least 12 out of 10, because, I mean, they're just, they're just, they're, they're the perfect duck. They, you know, they're, they're, they, they go off, they spend lots of time at sea. They're huge. You know, the, you know, the females can weigh like almost two kilos. You know, they, and they just, they dive, uh, and, and bring out, you know, mussels and urchins and you can see them just sort of flipping it around in their mouth, trying to crack it open. They make these brilliant rafts. The down is exquisite and in some parts of the world is, is harvested. So that's where you get, you know, eider down jackets and uh, sleeping bags and various things, and it's done in a really sustainable way. There's a Canadian ornithologist named Jean Bedard who pioneered studies of eiders in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Quebec. And the way that he funded his research was to set up community cooperatives to harvest, sustainably harvest eider down and sell that on to, to people who would use it in... And I mean, and the chicks, they leave the nest at two days old. They're just these tiny little balls of, of eider. And you just see them clambering across the rocks. And they just go whoop, right into the water. And they're brilliant. They are fantastic. And they're a bird I see relatively commonly up here on the Northumberland coast. Well, very commonly. They're intrinsically linked to lots of different places, I guess. But, you know, my childhood on the Northumberland coast, 
saw them all the time and going to the Farn Islands and the local name up here is the Cuddy Duck, which is believed to come originally from St. Cuthbert, who was a missionary who lived on the Farne Islands. That's where he had his hermitage originally, and he was a, a very early naturalist and conservationist, and he particularly loved the Ida Ducks up that way. So yes, from St. Cuthbert comes Cuddy Duck, and that's what a lot of people still up here do call them. But they are a, a beautiful duck, and even the female, you know, the male is the, like all ducks, let's face it, the the wow factor He's and he's going out gear, but the the females, the patterning on their plumages are stunning when you see one on its nest. You know, absolutely beautiful birds. And I like a lot of ducks. And and I've I've often talked with people on Twitter about which is the best duck. And I've always loved the smew. Uh, I, I do love a smew because they just look like punk stormtroopers, and they're awesome. But I'm starting to swing towards the Ida. The more I the more I talk about them, and the more I see them and appreciate them, and hear them i mean so there's there's five eiders in the world common eider obviously is the, the most common appropriately enough but i mean you know king eiders which you know we sometimes get in the uk have this fantastic blue green yellow psychedelic plumage on their heads the males you know you've got um spectacled eiders that look like they're wearing glasses so they've got these two white patches around you've got stellar's eider which is just it's you know this fantastic like brown and black and yellow the the lines are brilliant the female's uh plumage is just so perfect if you're walking along i have almost stepped on more eiders i think than any other species because the female on the nest just hunkers down and you don't even know she's there until you're just about to step and you realize oh and there she is in that ring of down with like eight eggs um, and you obviously quietly back away and let her do her thing. But, you know, yeah, the, the, the bills, there's fantastic geographic variation in, in the shapes of the bills, depending on the subspecies. Um, some of them are more yellow, some of them are more orange, some of them are more pointy. They're just, yeah, they're, they're just the perfect duck. And, you know, Smew is brilliant, like that white on black, no argument there. But, I mean, green smudge. <laughs> Again, to quote Sam West, it's that pistachio speedboat appearance that they have. <laughs> I love that. But yeah, no, cracking, cracking birds. And you've picked five great species there. And obviously the setup of, of this podcast is that you've chosen these five to save from certain extinction, but you can only choose one of them as your your ultimate champion, your best of all, to go head to head with my favourite the peregrine falcon in what's basically a futile and childish best bird battle. So, which bird are you going to choose? So it's a very tough choice, but I'm going to have to go a woo woo, and it's the eider. Oh, right, okay. So, as you may know, decide on the winner of the best bird off battle at the end of each episode this series. I'm coming up with a different method a different device to to pick the decider because basically i couldn't just decide myself as i learned to my detriment in the first series or the peregrine's detriment previous weeks we've done wheel of fortune we've done play your cards right we've done top drums we've done a variety of different things and this week we're going to do that family favorite countdown so i have created a couple of different countdown conundrums anagrams if you like and you have got to find the bird species within the jumbled up letters, just like they do on countdown 
obviously you can't make it completely like countdown and this is not going to work at all on a podcast without any visual <laughs> so it's completely pointless but i'm gonna do it anyway i've created it and i'm sticking with it so instead of the consonant vowel thing i've got two that i've created and you're going to choose one of them and if you get it right your ida duck is this week's winner so you get to choose though one of the two one of them has three vowels and one of them has four vowels so which do you want to go for the three vowel or the four vowel word well seeing as how either has three vowels i'm gonna go for the three vowel word you're going for the three three vowel i'm getting my stopwatch out i've got it here <laughs> for people listening at home i've stuck bits of paper on a plank of wood here we go right and i'm gonna time it from now so you've got an R, a C, an A, an M, an O, an N, an O, a T, and an R. Do, do I not get the countdown music? I'm going to add that on afterwards if, I, if I'm allowed. <laughs> do, 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 do. You've got a few more oh. seconds yet. <laughs> uh, cormorant? Yeah, you got it right <laughs> in the end. You, I thought I had you there for a, I thought a few more seconds. Oh. But you're right. The word was cormorant on the other side was great skewer but yeah you did beat me there so this week's winner of golden grenades is alex's ida duck well done pointless right is that is that next week <laughs> <laughs> very good very good Right. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on today. It's It's been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you today and, and hearing all about your birds and your research. It's, be, it's It's been wonderful. Before you go, do you have any advice or anything to, to say to budding naturalists or, you know, wannabe museum curators out there on how they can become involved or anything? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously with uh, things still quite locked down in the UK, most museums don't have you know, volunteers or, or community science projects up and running. But, you know, there's different ways that you can contribute to museums. If you find uh, a, a dead bird, chances are your local museum can probably do something with it. I mean, we certainly can at the Natural History Museum, as long as it's got those those key things that we mentioned early on, a species, a date, and a location. Um, you know, it can be looked after and, and have a legacy beyond beyond its life. You know, we've got birds that, at the NHM that are 250 years old. You know, that's how long these things can last. And, you know, so everything from that, you know, supporting your local museums. You know, the NHM is a massive museum, but, um, you know, just as important as you mentioned, it was the Great North Museum in, in Newcastle, but your local museums as well, which might have small natural history displayed, because those are the museums that are, you know, really under threat, understaffed, uh, and not terribly well supported, especially if they're run by um, a lot of local authorities. So get out there, visit your museums, talk to museum staff because they absolutely love it. And if you find stuff, bring it in because you know every every as Tesco says, you know every little helps. And what you do can you know be useful for somebody in fifty, a hundred, two hundred years time. Yeah, that's fantastic. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? When you put it like that, I'm going to go looking for dead birds this afternoon now. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Alex. Take care. Thanks, Kit. Cheers. Well, that's all we've got time for this week, folks. Do join me again next week where my special guest will be the Spurn Bird Observatory legend, Johnny Fisk. Until then, bye for now. Bye.